It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we bring you the latest news from across the battlefront, discuss Russia's announcement to deploy tactical nuclear weapons to Belarus, and analyse a Ukrainian seaborne attack on Russian ships in Crimea. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in faith. We need a military strategy for Ukraine to gain a decisive advantage on the battlefield, to win the war. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Monday, the 27th of March, one year and 31 days since the full-scale invasion began. And joining me today is Associate Editor for Defence Dominic Nichols and Assistant Comment Editor Francis Durnley. I started by asking Dom for the latest updates from the war. Well, hi, David, and hello, everybody. So first, let's start in the south of Ukraine. There's been some, some unusual activity there. So let's start in Mariupol, city on the on the, the coast with the Sea of Azov, site of the defence there at the Azovstal steel plant months ago. So in Mariupol, Mikhail Mokivvin, who's the Russian-appointed police chief in the city there, he was injured, not killed, but injured this morning in a car bomb attack. And the Ukrainian mayor in exile, Vadim Boychenko, has said that that was down to the Mariupol resistance. No further details there, but we've seen this type of partisan activity spread across the south. Now, let's go west from there. So about 100 k's due west to the city of Melissapol, which is almost on the coast, but 20 k's or so in, inland there. Then a building was hit. A single story building was demolished, which was described well, the Ukraine says it was a, an army barracks. Local authorities said it was a college or Russian authorities said it was a college. And actually, it was destroyed by shelling. Now, I'd question that. I mean, given the range, it's at least oh, 50 or 60 k's away from the closest Ukrainian position, as in regular position. So I'd, I'd, I would doubt whether or not it was um, it was shelling. Images on social media show that um, show that single-storey building completely destroyed. So quite what's going on, we're, we're not sure. But as I say, we have seen instances of this type of partisan activity, if that's what it is, before across the south, particularly active in the around the Hezon area. Now, separately to that, let's go back up to the Donbass. So the fighting around Bakhmut still carries on. Ukrainian forces say they repelled a number of 
Russian assaults over the weekend. The head of the Ukraine's ground forces said that holding the city is a, quote, military necessity. I mean, we are long beyond any tactical advantage here, really for either side. And as we've been saying for a long time now, it, it is being, it's viewed just as as ground for Russia, just to try and bite off what they can chew. I mean, they've already declared that they, they've taken that, um, they've annexed the, uh, the Donetsk Oblast. So to have this this annoying town that still isn't isn't controlled by them. They have to take it for their incredibility. Ukraine seem to be using it to wear down the Russian forces in anticipation of, of a of a, a counteroffensive from Ukraine. So it, it suits Ukraine to still keep fighting there. They have reinforced recently. There was a suggestion that actually it had gone beyond the point of of military use for Ukraine, i.e., that the people that they were losing, Ukraine were losing, were the uh, more experienced soldiers, more more senior in the chain of command, and that actually all the the Russian casualties were mobilised people from the Wagner, mobilised convicts for the Wagner group, and the recently conscripted regular Russian forces. I, I'm not so sure about that. I've seen comment, but no real analysis or detail on that. But clearly, Ukraine feel that it is still in their advantage to keep fighting for Bakhmut. And then let's go southwest of Bakhmut, so 50k southwest, sorry, 80k's about 50 miles southwest of Bakhmut to Abdivka. So we're now 10 k's north of Donetsk city itself. This has been described by Vitaly Barabash, who's the head of the local Ukrainian military administration, as, quote, a place from post-apocalyptic movies, unquote. I mean, it's just been, it is being smashed up the same as Bakhmut. There's thought to be about 2,000 civilians left in the city from a pre, the pre-invasion or pre-February 24th estimate of about 30,000. So it, it is largely empty of civilians. But again, Russia have been making very limited gains here at huge cost. There is some chat amongst the Russian blogger community saying that actually, haha, Avdivka is the, was, the, uh, was the operational objective all along and Bakhmut was just a, a sideshow. I think that's absolute rubbish. We know that they've been desperate for Bakhmut for months. Avdivka has been further along the line and clearly they want all their lives to be to be moving forward, but they've not um, they've not really concentrated in one particular area. And to suggest now that Avdivka was the priority all along suggests that Bakhmut was just a diversion or a shaping operation, um, in which case, if that's true, it's failed heroically on both of those for both of those tasks. So I think that's that's nonsense. But Avdivka is a is a hugely violent place as well, the same as we've said we've seen recently in, in Bakhmut for the last few months. And just finally, we should talk about um, Russian recruiting. So we, we've seen a number of adverts in Russia offering about $650, 530-ish pounds for every kilometre advanced. In um, they're, they're, This is a spring enlistment drive. They are hoping to avoid a second round of mobilisation. That was politically possibly the, the well, certainly the biggest and maybe the only real wobble we've seen from Russian society, this announcement of mobilization. So Putin is very keen not to do that again, not have an official mobilization activity. So they are doing whatever they can to enlist people. A number of adverts on Russian government websites and social media offering people bonuses of up to well, nearly $4,000. So, you know, just over 3000 3, pounds to sign up for the military. And they're offering for those that then serve in Ukraine, a monthly salary of up to, yes, that's their quote, up to two and a half thousand dollars. And um, if my mobile phone contract is anything to go by, then the words up to are doing a, a, a lot of lifting there, heavy lifting. So two and a half thousand dollar monthly salary plus a hundred dollars a day 
for what they quote as involvement in active offensive operations. So they're, they're desperate to get more people from wherever they wherever they can and avoid a, uh, a second mobilization drive. I'll come back. Uh, let Francis come in on the on the nuclear weapons Belarus angle. I've got to comment on that later, but I'll I'll take a little pause there. Well, thank you very much for that, Dom. Yes, Francis, let's go to you. Some of the really big news coming out over the weekend was between Russia and Belarus. Can you talk us through this? Well, thanks, David, and welcome back to our listeners around the world. Yes, as you say, the biggest diplomatic story over the weekend was Putin's announcement of his plans to station tactical nuclear weapons in Belarus for the first time, shifting these weapons closer to Europe and Kyiv. This represents the first time that Russia will store part of its nuclear arsenal in another country since the breakup of the Soviet Union. I'll read a quote from what Putin said. We agree with Lukashenko that we would place tactical nuclear weapons in Belarus without violating the non-proliferation regime. He's made this statement on a television broadcast. He went on to suggest that his announcement was in response to news that Britain was sending depleted uranium shells to Ukraine with its Challenger 2 tanks. He said Russia has his own answer to ammunition with depleted uranium. We have similar weapons, but the Russian Federation has not used them. Now, as we've, of course, talked about on the podcast, this idea that this depleted uranium in any way is uh, symbolic or representative of a nuclear threat is totally bogus. And I'd point listeners to, I think it was Wednesday's episode last week, where Dom and Hamish de Breton Gordon tore it apart, as it were. It's total nonsense. And indeed, the British MOD this morning have said the British Army has used depleted uranium in its armour-piercing shells for decades. It is a standard component and has nothing to do with nuclear weapons or capabilities. Russia knows this, but is deliberately trying to disinform. Now, you can imagine some of the international reaction to this. NATO has rejected comparisons between its nuclear sharing and Russia's decision to deploy tactical nuclear weapons in Belarus. Uh, Of course, Putin said there's nothing unusual about it. And even, as you'd expect, talked about how the United States has been doing it for decades. He said they've long deployed their weapons on the territory of their allied countries. But this, as I say, has been roundly disputed by NATO. Spokesperson said over the weekend, Russia's reference to NATO's nuclear sharing is totally misleading. NATO allies act with full respect of their international commitments. Russia has consistently broken its arms control commitments, most recently suspending its participation in the New START Treaty. That, of course, being the treaty that we've talked about in the past between the United States and Russia. Now, the Ukrainian reaction is also interesting. They've called for an emergency UN Security Council session to address Putin's plans. In a statement, Kiev's foreign ministry described it as another provocative step uh, by Moscow that undermines the international security system as a whole. Russia once again confirms its chronic inability to be a responsible steward of nuclear weapons as a means of deterrence and prevention of war, not as a tool of threats and intimidation. And as I say, it demands a Security Council session and is also called on the G7 and the EU to warn Belarus of far-reaching consequences if it decides to accept these Russian weapons. So a big story, the optics are powerful, but 
I think it is important to underline here that the political reality underpinning this might not be. One could argue that it shows an increasing paranoia about Russia's crumbling influence in some of the former Soviet states, perhaps not Belarus, but there are still signs in Belarus of a very strong anger about what Lukashenko is doing there. He is a dictator after all, and many, many people in the opposition were unhappy. And the timing is very interesting. I'm grateful for the journalist William Natras, who will be writing for us tomorrow on this very subject, for pointing out that Saturday, so the day of the announcement, was Belarus Freedom Day, which is an unofficial holiday celebrated by the oppressed Belarusian opposition. And in this context, one could argue that Putin's decision to put weapons in Belarus, or at least announce that he intends to do so, is a political signal to show that the Kremlin would feel entitled to quash any rebellion against his influence in that country. But it's also sending potentially a clear sign to other former Soviet states, Georgia, where there's been mass protests held against the Kremlin-linked government there for several weeks. Also, I was very struck by the remarks by a foreign minister of Serbia, who seemed to be suggesting that his country may end up joining the West in sanctioning Russia. A very interesting development there. Of course, we've been looking at Serbia for some time and the Balkans are very, very important for Putin and his broader influence. And that's, of course, before we even get onto the subject of the Central Asian states, which James Kilner has spoken about at length for us in the past, and the way in which the war has led to recalibrations there, not only new relationships with China, but also some anger and frustration there about how Putin has handled this and a decline in influence, which is why, of course, America and China are seeking to broker new relationships with some of those Central Asian states. Anthony Blinken, of course, that went there recently. So, All of that is interesting. And I also think as well, it is important to remember that whenever one speaks the language of nuclear, on the one hand, it speaks of unspeakable power. Yet on the other, I would argue a profound weakness. Putin only does this when he's in a dangerous, volatile situation. Of course, listeners will remember who've been with us since the beginning. The failure to to take Kyiv led to a lot of sabre rattling after that. We've now seeing this in the context of a failed offensive from Russia. Again, I think the timing is significant. It's like when one hears a, a terrorist threatening to bomb somewhere. It's horrific but they're not coming from a position of strength. Terrorism is a strategy of weakness adopted by those who lack access to real power or the ability to change their circumstances. And I just think it in that context, whilst, of course, it all makes the headlines and it seems like a power play, which, of course, it is, that actually it doesn't necessarily show a position of, of immutable strength, but quite the opposite, David. But I'll stop there because I know that Dom has some thoughts on this as well. Thank you, Francis. Well, Dom Nichols, do you want to come in there? What are your thoughts on what Francis said? Well, all I'd add is I I think it's very interesting that it's come a week after the Xi-Putin summit in Moscow. I mean, we know that that Xi wants the situation calmed down. He's come out with this 12-point peace plan, which we've spoken about before, which is not very good, but they've come out with something there. And of course, China is, uh, their tails are up because they've they managed to broker a, a, a well, restoring a bit diplomatic relations between Saudi Arabia and and Iran recently. So, so they see themselves as 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 global mediators. They're trying to sort of take that position from the U.S. So, China tails up. I can't see President Xi being happy at all that as soon as he leaves the country and goes back home, 
Putin starts rattling the nuclear saber yet again, because that is exactly not, that does not calm things down. So it'd be interesting to, to look for any reaction there from, from China. And secondly, um, in terms of nuclear deterrence, I would direct people to David Blagden, who's a professor of international relations at Exeter University, good guy, spoken to us before. And he says, in, the, in answer to this, the suggestion that actually Putin constantly coming out with these sort of statements about nukes and all the rest of it shows that nuclear deterrence does not work. David Blagden says actually quite the opposite. He says, and I'm quoting here directly from, from a tweet thread he put out this morning, you can find him find him online, Blagden underscore David. He says actually nuclear deterrence has had a compelling year. Russia has deterred us from direct military intervention, even as they've brutalised a non-NATO ally. But we've deterred Russia from striking armed supply depots in NATO, even as we've poured weapons into thwarting their war. He says the likes of Finland, Sweden and Ukraine are now hammering at NATO's door, asking to be let into a nuclear armed alliance. So those most exposed to Russian hostility clearly recognise that nuclear deterrence is a thing. And then finally, he says, a case can be made for nuclear disarmament if one has enough faith in multilateral agreements and verification safeguards. But simply denying that nuclear deterrence exists when it so obviously, intuitively and manifestly does is not the way to do it. So David Blagden saying there that, that all this, as scary as it is, and I'm, and I'm, I'm not trying to downplay it because Putin did invade when it does not make sense for the reasons that are obvious to everybody now. So we can't say, oh, he'll never do it. He's got nuclear weapons. He's threatening these things. We do have to take notice of that. However, David Blagden, they're clear that nuclear deterrence is working. So it's it's scary and we should take notes, but we do not need to go overboard and worry too much here, I think, because the, the in the grand scheme of things, nuclear deterrence does seem to still be working. But I do have a look at David Blagden. He's very a very learned fellow. If I could just jump in there, I do agree with that analysis. I think that the role of the nuclear deterrent was absolutely paramount to how the West has responded to this, for right or wrong. That perceived threat really matters. And I do believe that if this had taken place without nuclear weapons existing, I know this is an impossible hypothetical, but nonetheless, there would have been intervention from the West. And I think they would have had boots on the ground. I think it's the question of, of what would happen if things were to uh, to go nuclear, is what is stopping many, many countries from doing more. So in that sense, I do agree with that. I think the, of course, concern of that as well, though, is in a broader international context, is that countries like Iran, countries like North Korea, uh, other countries who will be looking to acquire usable nuclear weapons will look at this conflict now and will say, well, this is the way we get what we want from the international community. That actually, th- that it's shown that if you want to invade another country that as long as you've got the nuclear weapons that you have in a sense more power more leverage uh, than you would have otherwise it sounds like an obvious point but these countries are desperate to have them and then for a sustained period of time the messaging that was coming out from the wider world was look the age of nuclear is over that it's about us reducing the number of these weapons that's what the start treaty was all about it's about us cutting back trimming rather than expansion and yet you have to say that as a consequence of what we've seen in the war in ukraine there'll be many countries will be looking to say that if we want to be taken seriously you have to have these weapons and that i think is a huge concern i mean that we are of course framing all of this in the context of the significance of this war now. But depending on what happens in the next 10 years or maybe even a shorter period of time, people might say the most significant thing that came out of this war was the role, that, the, the expansion of the role of nuclear weapons and the Iran nuclear deal 
whatever. This has huge ramifications. And so, yeah, I think it's it's very concerning. And it won't be in, until this is measured by historians long after the fact that we get a real sense of the changes that have taken place. But I do think it's a concern. Well, thank you, Francis and Dom. Dom, can I come to you just briefly? Would you like to comment on today's intelligence update from the British MOD? I know we've mentioned this before, but I thought through the lens of, I mean, we've been asked by a couple of listeners just to give examples of potentially the Russian armed forces learning and adapting. And this might be a good one to talk about. Yeah, so today's defence intelligence update from Britain's MOD says that on the 22nd of March, what was that, last Thursday? Maybe last week sometime. We spoke about this at the time, but MOD today are saying that three uncrewed surface vessels, so drones, surface drones, maritime drones, and possibly an aerial drone as well, attempted to strike uh, Sevastopol in occupied Crimea. Now, as we spoke about at the time, and again, I'll direct you to H. Sutton's website here, Covert Shaw's website. He talked about these uncrewed surface vessels that, if we remember, last last October successfully did get into Sevastopol Harbour and hit a couple of ships. We think the minesweeper Ivan Golubets was hit and the frigate Admiral Makarov also hit last October. So it can have some effect. We don't think it sunk anything back in October, but we know that um, a number of vessels were moved and we think the entire fleet of Kilo-class nuclear submarines, nuclear-powered, not nuclear-armed submarines, were moved to Russia. I mistakenly, when we spoke about it last week, I erroneously referred to it saying they moved to the Russian mainland. Of course, that was the incorrect phrasing for which I apologised. They moved from Crimea to Russia. Um, Now, the report last week saying that these these uncrewed surface vessels, maritime drones, had got had been were unsuccessful in their in their attack. One seems to have been caught on the booms that surround the naval yard there, and the others, R- Russia reported at the time that they had been well. They said shot down, which made us think it was aerial drones. So maybe there was one. We don't know about the maritime aspect of it, um, but again, it it draws attention to the innovation that we're seeing because we weren't when we saw this thing last October and again reiterated last week we weren't quite sure what these drones were there's nothing I mean there's been experiments with them in the US and I think the British forces as well but nothing we think is in service yet so it shows great innovation from from Ukraine and it also shows that you don't have to have literal destructive effects to have a military effect now we know this this happens all the time this is why the, before the Moskva was sunk, the Russian fleet, the Black Sea fleet that was sort of moving up and down the coast, held Ukrainian land for in well they, they had to be in in reserve in case of an amphibious landing. We see it also in the north of the country where we think circa seventeen thousand ish Russian troops are training in Belarus. We don't think they're going to try and invade again because they. They, it didn't work last time when they in last February March, but just having that force up there means that Ukraine has to hold forces in readiness in the area, which they then can't use elsewhere. Of course, so that does have a military effect. So, if for the price of two or three experimental, innovative drones, which may have had an effect last last October, that doesn't seem to have done anything last week. If it means that you move your kilo-class submarines away and some other frigates and it keeps the Black Sea fleet largely in port or nervously looking over their shoulder or they have to take other kind of measures to protect the, the, the naval headquarters in Sevastopol, then it has it has great effect. So, so potentially what we're seeing here is possibly a very small unit, experimental unit, that coming up with new technology that they can then put into effect. You don't have to. As I say, it doesn't have to be perfect. 
back to the old maxim of the perfect or perfect is often the enemy of the very good. It just has to be very good, not absolutely perfect and sink all the ships. It just has to do something to have a military effect. So you know, good for MOD Defence Intelligence to um, to report today on something that we obviously spoke about last week. But um, it's good to see that uh, our analysis reiterated and, and supported there by, by the MOD. But I don't think this is going to be the last we see of this, this kind of experimental use of technology and weapons, not necessarily for a, gr- a great whiz-bang at the time, but to fix the minds of, of Russian commanders. Thank you very much for that, Dom. Francis, can I go to you? There's a few more diplomatic updates that I'd like you to talk us through. Thanks, David. Well, on Friday, I spoke about the remarks of President Zelensky and his appeals for further weaponry from the European Union and other Western allies. And there's been some more of this over the weekend. He's gone as far as saying that his forces cannot launch a counteroffensive without more HIMARS and other equipment from the US. He made these remarks in a interview with a Japanese newspaper. And I'll read the quote directly. We can't launch it yet without tanks, artillery and HIMARS. We cannot send our brave soldiers to the front lines. So very strong words from him. I do wonder whether this is designed to try and inject a sense of urgency for weapons, not only in the short term, but in the much longer term too, because key decisions are being made now. I mean, the fact is that if even if more weapons were to be signed off, it's going to take a sustained period of time for them to get to Ukraine. And I think that we would definitely miss what seems to be the intended counter-offensive time. So I do wonder here whether this is a bit of misinformation and misdirection, as it were, uh, designed to further thicken the fog of war. It just feels to me like that, that they that this may not actually be the the complete truth, but then I could be entirely wrong and that they really are waiting. But there are mixed messages coming out of Ukraine at the moment from whether we had the remarks by senior military commanders last week saying that you know the, the, the spring offensive will be, is almost ready to go, taking advantage of the failed Russian offensive. Uh, contrast that with these who are saying that, that, that you know time the time is not right. It just feels like a deliberate ploy to me. But as I say, I, I could be wrong. But regardless, it doesn't matter because Zelensky is absolutely right that they're going to need continued substantial weapons support, whether that be for the spring offensive or whether that be for the coming year. Regardless, time is precious and time is urgent. And so it doesn't matter whether this is for this offensive or for another one in the future. It's still vital timing. And so I think it's it's interesting that we're getting this consistent messaging out of Kyiv. Just staying on Ukraine for a moment, some quite interesting developments in the economic sphere. Of course, mostly when we're talking about economics in Ukraine, it's relating to donations from European countries. But it is important to remember that it is still a functioning economy as well. And inevitably, a a functioning economy at war faces profound trials and tribulations. And in that context, the Ukrainian National Bank has made an announcement that it's resolved its open conflict with the government over how to fund the war and will no longer be resorting to what it calls the very dangerous practice of printing new money. Now, this comes from the governor, Andrei Pishny. He told the Financial Times that the monetary policy that has been loose up until now has created huge risks for macro-financial stability of the Ukrainian national currency, and that the idea of printing money as a quick remedy was dangerous. 
And as a consequence, they're seeking new ways in which to do this. The, the, an, an end to the monetary financing is built into a $15.6 billion loan agreed between the International Monetary Fund and Kiev last week, which still needs approval from the fund's executive board. But nonetheless, a lot of things are, are going on here. Relationships, obviously, with the Western world remain vital in keeping the economy afloat. But clearly, there is some tension between what the government seeks to do and between the uh, the bank. There always is. That is a healthy tension, one could argue, in a democracy, because, of course, the government wants to spend and the uh, it's the, the job of the bank to say, well, you can't necessarily do that. So, but interesting development, nonetheless, because I'm conscious I'm so often speaking about the Russian economy. And I do think that in many ways matters more because they do not have as many means for in the long term of replenishing some of the damage that's been wrought by this war. But nonetheless, I think when there is a story like this, it's uh, it, it's still... And just lastly, Poland. What's interesting is Poland's been very vocal. We've spoken a lot about them recently of following the remarks of... President Putin over the weekend with regard to nuclear weapons in Belarus. And indeed, they've gone so far as accusing the Belarus in response of of accused Poland of deliberately slowing the movement of trucks and cars into the EU at its border, alleging that Warsaw are failing to implement bilateral agreements. And I'll read a quote directly. Since Friday, a queue in front of the only accessible border crossing point on the Belarusian-Polish border has doubled in size and now totals 1,000 cars. Now, there's been no immediate response from Poland to this, but they haven't outrightly denied it. So it does, again, speak to this kind of diplomatic tit for tat, but also the given the, the renewed role that Poland has had in its robust spot response to the war, the tensions that are playing out now between Poland and its neighbour of Belarus uh, as a consequence of this war. And also, interestingly, just staying on Poland, Poland's detained a foreign citizen on charges of spying for Russia. That's according to prosecutors uh, today. They've said that they're involved in acts of Russian espionage and disinformation. And there has, as a consequence, been charges made, as I say. We're not hearing much more on that. But there have, of course, been numerous instances within Europe where we've reported in Germany and in Britain as well. Of, of spies being caught or uh, those who are acting as provocateurs and so renewed aff- attention on that as well today. So I'll leave it there, David. Thank you very much, Francis. I think that's the end of our updates. So, Dom Nichols, can I come to you for your final thoughts? I mean, I'd be curious, Dom, we, we didn't he- hear from you in the end of last week, so I'd be curious to, to hear from you of just how you think things might have changed over the past five days, what you've been looking at and how you think the week ahead might be shaped. Well, I think the big changes over the last few days has been this would I say dawning realization or acceptance that Bakhmut is definitely not going the way that Russia wanted? I mean, what it was three, four weeks ago that Yevgeny Prigozhin, the head of Wagner, was saying that it was it was done. Now, of course, we know that he was he had his own political reasons for doing so, but at the time that they were saying that Wagner troops were in the centre of the city and so on and so forth. I mean, that's simply not the case. Or, I mean, but Bakhmut has not fallen, and. Uh, at the same time, as I mentioned earlier, these ideas that what, is it is it still in Ukraine's best military interest to keep fighting there if they're losing seasoned fighters? Well, now it looks it's starting to look very different. It's starting to look as if Russia cannot take the town and are are shifting the narrative to say actually Yevdivka further south it, that was the objective all along. They're using no different tactics. They're using no different equipment. They haven't sort of kept something in reserve that we've seen yet that's going to create a breakthrough somewhere along the line. All we're seeing is that they are not able, Russia is not able to to, to completely take all the territory in the four oblasts that it supposedly 
has has annexed. So it's it is the the longer back move does not fall to Russia, the more desperate Putin will come. Now, as I said, that's not necessarily a good thing in light of the conversation we're having about nuclear weapons, but it's all wrapped up together. It's unsurprising that this chat comes out now. So I thought over the last few days, it was quite interesting to see how the narrative was shifting there. I think if if nothing particularly decisive happens for Russia in Bakhmut in the next week or two weeks, then I think that really is that really does mark a culmination point for the Russian military. Remember, culmination is when you, you're no longer going backwards, you're not being forced back, but you're exhausted, you can't keep going forward, you can just about hold the line you have, that's culmination. I think Russia probably have culminated. They need personnel, they need equipment, they need high-tech you know, high technology for their precision weapons and so on and so forth, which they're trying to get from China and elsewhere. But remember, months ago, and up to just a few weeks ago, we were talking about the T-72 turret throwing competition because there were so many images of tanks blowing up and, and um, you know chucking the turrets around. We've not sort of glibly talked about that for weeks now because the tanks aren't there. They don't have the equipment. They're getting T-54s out of storage, T-62 and 64s out of storage. I mean, very, very, very old vehicles to try and push into this fray. All they have is personnel. And as I said at the start of this, they are running out of new recruits hence they're going on this enlistment drive so i think we are seeing the russian army culminating that's not to say that they will then roll over if there's some ukrainian spring offensive because one of the things they have been doing the lines have been fairly static for months now and russia have been digging in they've been physically building fortifications and as as we have seen it is it is one thing to defend it is quite another to attack so if if ukraine go on the offensive now then they might be meeting the kind of casualty rates that we've seen russia experience around bakhmut and elsewhere for the last few weeks so Ukraine know that and will be in no no hurry at all to go before they're able to put together a combined arms force of tanks engineers artillery infantry and etc etc so i think the russian army is culminating around bakhmut they're trying to shift the narrative to say actually no it's all down south it's abdivka but i don't think that's correct i think the next couple of weeks into april as we start getting towards summer then time is running out for russia because they know that this spring offensive is is on the way just one final point over the weekend the british ministry of defense said that the training of the first batch of Ukrainian tank crews on Challenger 2 was complete and they were going back to their country. So it's a while before they will be in Ukraine on Challenger 2 and even longer before they're on Challenger 2 and able to operate alongside infantry fighting vehicles as part of this combined arms army. But, you know, they are getting there and Russia knows that, knows that they've got big problems trying to shift the narrative and shift the lines. Thank you very much for that, Dom Nichols. Francis Sterling, can I have your final thoughts, please? Thanks, David. We've talked a lot about military strategy today, and I've recently been trying to re-familiarise myself with some of the classics of political theory and historical analysis in the military context. I was rereading Machiavelli's Discorsi over the weekend, one of the first texts to treat history in the abstract and identify certain lessons or rules from it. We take that for granted now, but actually it was pretty novel in the 16th century. And a quote from it jumped out to me, which I'll read now. He says, people well armed and equipped for war should always wait at home to wage war with a powerful and dangerous enemy and should not go out to meet him. But one who has ill-armed subjects and a country unused to war should always meet the enemy as far away from home as he can. Both of them will, in this way, equip themselves better, each in his degree. And I wondered whether this 
observation partially explains the stalemate, or at least the, uh, the the state of the armies as they currently stand. Ukraine was far more well prepared for this war than Russia was. We can say that, I think, with confidence now. They've been on a war footing ever since the Crimean annexation in 2014 and, crucially, are fighting on their home turf. Russia thought it was the well-armed and equipped one, to use Machiavelli's phrase, but actually was unused to war. Yet his point is is that actually that may unintentionally help them to a degree. His point being that almost counterintuitively disadvantaged armies fight better fighting away from home as they become increasingly desperate. But I think he's also trying to say that it is better for a less prepared power to fight further from home because the domestic risk of unrest caused by the army is greatly reduced. They're at an arm's length, of course, and they're not able to rebel. And we've spoke about that in the Russian context in the past, obviously comparing what's happened in with the Decemberists who came back from the Napoleonic Wars and wanted to reform Russia, having received ideas about uh, the Enlightenment from France and elsewhere, but perhaps more accurately in this scenario, which is if this failed army were to return to Russia now, it would echo what happened in 1905, of course, when after the disaster of the Russo-Japanese War, and arguably, of course, most profoundly in 1917, when you had numerous uh, soldiers who had returned from the front lines or were on leave, who were agitating, in essence, at their, and expressing their anger at the Tsar, and then, of course, later the provisional government. So I think Machiavelli is on to something here, and, and it, it, it matters in this context. Now, he's not saying that this is sustainable in the long term but I think he's trying to point out short term factors why powers can resist for longer and to offer of course one of his key things is always trying to offer advice for rulers on how they should lead obviously most famously in in the prince but actually I would argue that the discourses is a better summary of what he really thought rather than a sort of guidebook for tyranny but anyway that's a by the by now I know that some listeners I should just add that may roll their eyes when they hear these kind of antiquated references and think that you know warfare has fundamentally Changed. And of course, that is true, but it is worth bearing in mind that we have lived through a relatively peaceful and unusual era, one that is immeasurably rare when measured by the standards of history. Previous generations thought about peace as the temporary absence of war, it was a way of life. And today, we think about peace as the implausibility of war. And I think that because they knew war intimately and lots of different types of war as well on different scales, they still have a lot of lessons and wisdom to offer us. And so I do think as abstract as it can sometimes sound and perhaps even dissensitive at times, there is still value in looking back and thinking about what these great theorists have to teach us, if only to disagree with them. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine the latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, 
there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do refer to podcast apps. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, and today on Twitter, Claire Hubble.